I am really thankful for our ministry of music. Uh, this church is uh, blessed to have the caliber of musicianship that we have, and we don't want to take that for granted ever. Uh, the Lord allows us to be able to worship him together with um, music that we have, and so God is to be honored uh, because of it. If you'll open uh, your copy of the scripture and the Sermon on the Mount, we're back there uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 5 is where we find ourselves again, and this time verse 21 through verse 26. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Our Lord Jesus' sermon, we've been preaching for a few weeks, uh, cleaning from it uh, the profundities from the, the mind of God incarnate uh, for our living and understanding. Let me read the verses in your hearing, set them afresh in your mind before we begin the exposition of this passage. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something before the altar, and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. The subject this morning is identifying murderers. A Hollywood movie set may contain buildings, say, on a city street on a Hollywood movie set, and they are nothing but a facade. The face or the front of the building. There is only a structure behind the facade that holds the facade in place. There is the illusion of reality. This illustrates those whose righteousness is only external. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confronts the facade of righteousness. That's why he says in verse 20 of Matthew 5, these words, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees had a righteousness that was merely external. They appeared to be righteous to others, but they were not righteous where it really counts on the inside. Internal righteousness is the kind that God requires. It is the kind that must be possessed to enter the kingdom of heaven, that is, the realm of salvation. Thus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focused on what men were really like in their minds and hearts. This, is, in fact, has always been the divine perspective. A sampling from Scripture will prove the point that I just made. Solomon, 
in his dedicatory prayer for the temple said, quote, in 1 Kings 8, verse 39, in part, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. When it was time to select the successor to Saul, Samuel, the prophet of God, thought Eliab was the chosen one. But God said to his prophet Samuel, quote, Do not look at his appearance or at his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sees beyond the impressive externals and sees people's minds and hearts. Moreover, he scrutinizes what animates people to act the way they do. He sees the act, but he is looking behind the act. He's looking beyond, behind the facade, and he is seeing what moves them to behave in the way that they do. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2 says this, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Entirely clean to God. Impure motives cannot escape his penetrating gaze. You may remember a few years ago there was a detergent commercial. It had a tagline that said this, Dirt can't hide from intensified tide. <laughs> they claimed that their detergent was so good that nothing escaped the dirt. I'll say this. The intensity of the gaze of God is such that nothing can escape the uncleanness on the inside of a man or a woman. The Lord evaluates the divine, by divine standards, not human ones. One more sample from scripture about the penetrating gaze of deity. And it's found in Revelation chapter 2 verse 23. Jesus told the church of Thyatira that he is the one who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. End of quote. His omniscience. He knows. There is no hiding from him. It's nothing too dark for him. He sees what's really going on inside the minds and hearts uh, behind the deeds. That's what Jesus sees. He, he sees that the minds and hearts reveal the true spiritual condition of people. Righteousness that is only external does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, which Jesus calls for in Matthew 5, verse 20. In fact, as believers and true believers are called to a deeper holiness, a deeper righteousness. One that is found on the inside. And if you're a beatitude person, you understood that. That's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew 5, 3. The poor in spirit, they recognize that on the inside they're spiritually bankrupt. They have no righteousness to offer God. They're empty. And that's the place a person has to come to, to recognize their real need. That they're bereft of what God requires. You say, what does that have to do with murder? I'm glad you asked. 
A person can legitimately claim to have never committed physical murder. But according to our Lord, that is not enough. That does not mean that one who makes the claim is not a murderer. Let's begin to look at what Jesus says about murder. Our first heading will help us navigate it. It's divine interpretation of murder. You have heard that the ancients would murder. People of a different era, they are the ancients. They heard. They had to hear because they didn't have personal copies of the Old Testament to read for themselves. They heard the scripture read in the synagogues when they would meet in Israel. And the, the synagogue leader would give the Torah uh, whatever the rest of the scripture they had at that juncture to the person who would read and they would hear. And then a rabbi would expound the meaning of the text. And therefore they knew the sixth commandment. They knew that it prohibited murder. And by the way, that word murder there in the text here, and I'm using a New American Standard Bible, that word is the correct translation from the Greek word, phreneo. Phreneo refers to criminal killing. It refers to homicide. The Hebrew word in the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, underlying the word kill, and kill shouldn't be there in Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5, where it says, you shall not or thou shalt not kill. People have misunderstood that. They think the word kill it means, well, you can't execute a, a serial killer. Actually, the word is not talking about that. It does not include self-defense. It's not saying you can't defend yourself. It's not saying that the wars ordered by Yahweh, you can't do that. Capital punishment's not included when it follows due process. Or accidental manslaughter is not included in the Hebrew term. It really should be, thou shalt not murder. It's talking about homicide. It is saying you must not commit homicide. Let me give you some reasons why that's true. <laughs> Number one, because God said so. <laughs> that's easy enough, right? <laughs> Whenever God prohibits something, you best not do it. <laughs> but let's delve a little more deeply here. It is, this prohibition has a theological base basis. Man is made in the image of God, Genesis 9, 6. And God told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. You see, we're made in the image of God, and therefore, when someone murders an individual and they commit homicide, it's an attack upon God himself. Secondly, the commandment is for the protection of human life. There's a sanctity of human life. God wants to protect human life. That's why he prohibits murder. Thirdly, to murder is to usurp divine 
a divine prerogative over life and death. You and I do not have the right to take a life because that's God's right. That's his prerogative. But here's the deal. When Jesus is talking about this, in verse 21, he says, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. It could be simply this, stand trial and if found guilty were to be sentenced to death. But it appears that what they did, um, the rabbis, what Israel had done, they merely reduced it to a civil issue. They only looked at it as a physical act. That's what it seems the rabbis were doing, and, and that's what Jesus seems to be addressing. Is the physical act, is that all there is to murder? No. Here's Jesus in verse 22 when he says, but I say to you, let's just stop there and work on that for a moment. Here's a a contrast, an antithesis that Jesus begins to make. here. He is speaking authoritatively when he says, but I say to you. He is not contradicting the Old Testament. He is not saying the sixth commandment is wrong. He's not saying that at all. He did not come to abolish or annul the law and the prophets. We've already seen that. But also when Jesus says, but I say to you, he is speaking authoritatively because he is God incarnate. Jesus, when he said, but I say to you, he was quoting from some rabbi. You see what they did in that day, Rabbi A would quote from Rabbi B. And Rabbi B would quote, all these rabbis, quote, that's how they established their authority. Jesus didn't do that. He spoke from his own authority. But I say to you. And here he is interpreting authoritatively the meaning of murder. It's more than a physical act. He is dealing with a deeper meaning of of murder. It is a matter of the heart. It starts there. Matthew 5, 19, in part reads, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, and a list of other sins. Here's the point. Get this. Murder is, a person is a murderer before he actually commits a homicide. Just as Jesus teaches us later that a person is an adulterer even if they've never gotten in the bed with someone who's not their spouse. Y'all with me? Anger is the root of murder. Murder is the fruit. Let me pause here for a moment. Somebody's going to get uncomfortable. This talker, he's not an absolutist. That is, he doesn't prohibit all anger. How do we know that? Number one, scripture abundantly testifies to the fact that God himself becomes angry. Jesus exhibited anger in his ministry. The difference between God and Jesus and us is their anger is perfectly righteous. God is always angry at sin. 
His moral perfection is such he cannot but be angry at sin. Jesus was angry at sin, injustice, and hard-heartedness, Mark chapter 3. It's the perfection of his moral character that made him angry at sin. But you notice what's interesting about Jesus. He never was angry about what they did to him personally. Did you check that out? He was reviled, but he did not revile. First Peter. We can be angry. We're permitted to be angry. Because Ephesians 4 verse 26 says, be angry, but do not what? Sin. We have to be cautioned about anger because our anger will devolve into sin if we're not careful, right? Anger here. Jesus is equating with murder. It's murderous attitude. It's a desire in the heart that you want someone dead. And in fact, God has always intended that this, the heart, it be right toward others. Um, go there and read a text. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Listen to this. Just write it down. Don't try to find it with me. Just listen. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's God prescribes. You cannot take vengeance. You're not to bear a grudge. And when there's a grudge, there is the potentiality of something worse happening. Rather, just love. The murderous attitude can't be there, shouldn't be there. It's tantamount to murder. The desire to see someone dead. Now, let's look at that word. Focus on it a moment here. The word anger in our text here in Matthew 5, or getzoi, describes an abiding or habitual anger that characterizes a person as seething. It's just under the surface, in the heart. It is, you're just mad. It's the kind of anger that will not die. The angry person will not let it die. He or she keeps it on life support. Say, so how do they do that? By nursing it. By revisiting the offense. By holding a grudge. Thinking about what they did to me, what they said to me. And the anger is continuously fueled. It's like a fireplace and you go throw the logs on it. There's another aspect to this. See, Jesus is deeper about this issue than the physical act. It is in uh, 1 John, the uh, third chapter, verse 15. And it says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Did you read that? It didn't, doesn't say everyone who hates or everyone who shoots his brother is a murderer. But everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, John's quite clear, isn't he? Person has a hatred, that powerful emotion of hatred toward someone. Now, that's characteristic of them. That's ongoing with them. That's prima facie evidence that they are not uh, possessor of eternal life. I didn't write it. I just reported. Hatred. Anger and hatred. These powerful emotions in the heart. Demonstrably, one is not a possessor of eternal life. Now, I know some of you are worried. Because you say, oh, because I've experienced that. I've hated somebody. Don't tell the truth. Say, so well, I'm going to tell you what, um, we know you're not perfect. I'll talk to you about it later. <laughs> Hatred. We heard the report yesterday afternoon this guy 18 years old goes and murders 10 people. Hatred. It was in his heart. He didn't wake up and accidentally go kill them. He'd been wanting to kill them. He had, he had committed murder before he ever walked into that store in Buffalo, New York. Anger and hate. Potent emotions in the heart and they make a person a murderer even if he or she does not actually commit a murder. James Montgomery Boyce writes, quote, Suppose a man wants to kill his enemy, but is stopped by some unsuspected, unexpected circumstance. Is he innocent just because he didn't get a chance to follow through on his desire? Suppose he is too cowardly to kill, but would like to do it. Or he just is just afraid of getting caught. Is he innocent of breaking the sixth Commandment, Boyce answers, no. And I agree with him. Because Jesus says so. Jesus requires righteousness on the inside. In verse 22, the brother could be your fellow disciple, fellow Christian. Be anybody. And when that is there, Guilty before the court. That word court uh, renders a Greek term, and it could be translated this way, judgment. It is presupposed here that it is God's judgment. I think John Stott's right when he says this, quote, since no human court is competent to try a case of inward anger. And this anger will express itself in a murderous attitude. It will be verbalized. In Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, there is a geyser, geological feature. The geyser is a vent in the Earth's surface that periodically ejects column, a column of uh, hot air and steam. 
They call that particular geyser Old Faithful. I use that to illustrate this. The anger below the surface in the human heart will vent itself from the mouth in name calling. That's what our Lord says here. You notice in verse 22 in the middle of the verse it says, you good for nothing. It's a one-on-one encounter and this individual that Jesus is quoting says, you good for nothing. The English here, you good for nothing, is an attempt to represent the Aramaic term raka. Raka is hard to translate into English. Some translations just say raka. (laughs) It has meanings such as um, idiot, blockhead, empty-headed. It is a hate-filled put-down. It expresses contempt for a person's mental ability. It flows out of an angry heart. Jesus says, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin, that court of 70 that tried the most difficult courses, uh, cases, in Israel there's another and whoever says you fool you fool our word uh, moron is derived from the term that's used here in the original it it refers to uh, both being stupid and godless this is a contemptuous personal assault on someone's character. It's slanderous. I think I need to help you, don't I? In the Bible, we are, can use the term fool for someone when we're pointing out from Scripture, like the Proverbs, that they're acting contrary to God's will. That makes a person a fool. But let God say it to them. You show them the text. You quote the text. And there will be a big difference if you love a person, you want them to recognize your behavior is detrimental to you spiritually. Don't be that way because that's foolish. That's different from being contemptuous, hateful, and calling someone, you fool. You think, oh, they're just words. Oh, have you not read the text? Anyone who says this shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The word there is Gehenna. From the word, uh, the Valley of Hinnom, that's the idea in Israel and Jerusalem, or southwest of Jerusalem was the Valley of Hinnom. They had sacrificed a Molech, a false god there. Children did that. And the Valley of Hinnom had become the city garbage dump. It was always on fire. And it smelled. And it became a symbol for Hell. 
What Jesus is saying here, a person who says that, they are worthy of eternal damnation. Now, don't you think that's pretty serious? A murderous attitude exhibits itself, expresses itself in that contemptuous language is worthy of hell. Serious business, isn't it? I know some of you are worried. Because we're talking about identifying murderers. Let me just be honest and say, if with the spiritual police lineup, everybody's in line. Go and tell the truth, shame the devil. So what Jesus does here, he interprets murder. It's more than simply having not put someone to death. There are a lot of murderers running around free. You work with them. All the rest. Next thing we want to look at, the impact on our worship. The impact on our worship. Jesus says here, therefore. Now he's going to give some practical implications from his teaching in verses 21 and 22. Such words, of course, would fracture a relationship. Can you imagine telling somebody, you fool or you blockhead, you, uh, you good for nothing, you've just... You just said that. Now, if you go to a church, presenting your offering at the altar in there, remember that your brother has something against you. Yes. Because you call him a blockhead. Let me uh, say to you, with a fractured re- uh, relationship, that's what occurs. But we underst- also need to understand that when we do that, we sin against God. Remember fiery hell? Remember this, sin goes into, in two directions, vertical and horizontal. When we sin against others, it's horizontal. When we sin against God, it's vertical. How do we know this? I'll tell you how we know it. David helped us. David sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. He had Uriah murdered. He took Uriah's wife. In Psalm 51, 4, David writes, Against you, you only, I have sinned. What? Uh, Did you not kill Uriah? Did you not destroy the purity of Bathsheba by engaging in sinful relations with her? What David was saying, I broke your law. I violated the commandments. Since you, ultimately, I've sinned. And so when we sin against somebody else, we're sinning against God. Keep that in mind. I think people forget that. They think it's just between them. No, 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 no. It's between you, them, and God. By the way, let me add this. Suppose you, you've sinned against someone and they're dead. 
What do you do? Uriah was dead. David couldn't go to him and say, Uriah, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Because Uriah was dead. David had him killed. What do you do? In a case like that, I'll tell you what you do. You seek God's forgiveness. You can't get it right with the dead person. You should get it right with God. Now, how does this work out for us? You, you cannot worship God properly when a relationship with another is broken. When there's a fractured horizontal relationship, your worship to God is unacceptable. That's what Jesus is saying. In his day, before the sacrificial system was terminated by his own sacrifice on the cross, which was not very far in time from when he gave this sermon, they were still coming to Jerusalem with their sacrificial animals. And so a man would come to offer his sacrifice at the temple. And he's got that animal bound, his front and back legs, and he's sending it to the priest. He's going to go through the ritual that they've been going through for thousands of years and to offer his sacrifice. And there he remembers, oops, my brother has something against me. Jesus says in verse 24, you get reconciled with him. In other words, leave that animal there and go find your brother. And reconcile with him. Then you come back and worship. Now what's fascinating here. You need to understand a little geography. For those in Galilee. It's like an 80 mile trip from there. To Jerusalem. Jesus said leave that animal there. Go to Jerusalem. Deal with that. Come in Jerusalem. Come back to Galilee. Get it right with your brother. And then you go back and worship. Um, you want to do that. That's what Christ says. Let me, let me give you some help here. You see, get this. Offering a sacrifice for divine forgiveness when unwilling to express repentance to person a person against whom you have sinned is an example of external righteousness. It's a facade. Haddon Robinson is, uh, delayed Haddon Robinson, uh, was a professor, president of a seminary, author, radio host, and in all those positions. Naturally, it involved a lot of churches here in this nation of ours. And he recounted being in churches where people refused to talk to one another. They sang hymns, prayed, and gave their money, but they despised the people they worshipped with. <laughs> oh, I can just hear them now. Blessed assurance. <laughs> Jesus is mine. Oh. And they hate somebody in the building. <sighs> Robinson continues. God does not give us good marks for external conformity. Go and get it right. Mm. Verse 25. Next heading. The urgency of reconciliation. Here our Lord is giving a 
an illustration. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. You're not coming out till you paid up the last cent. Roman law provided that a plaintiff could bring the accused with him to face the judge. You're on your way. He's hauling you to the judge. And there's a sequence here you'll, you'll notice. In the bottom of verse 25, it says, Hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you're thrown into prison. So what you want to do, Jesus saying, Reconcile with your brother for you're thrown into prison. What is the prison? I believe it's divine chastening. It's an illustration. If you don't reconcile with your brother, the Lord will chasten you. Now, do understand, we can't make a person reconcile with us. Our responsibilities go and attempt it. If they reconcile with us, great. If they don't, we can't do it. We, we can't make that happen, but we need to be about doing that. In both these cases, verse 24, verse 25. Divine chastening for the child of God. If he or she doesn't do everything he can to make it right with his brother, then that'll come. I said earlier I was going to help you out, didn't I? Amen. <laughs> well, we've come to that point. Because I know this could be kind of heavy, can't it? Well, let me tell you what's going on here. In the fullest sense, no one has ever had a, a perfect attitude toward others. No worship in the fullest sense is acceptable. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is to show that God's standard of righteousness is unattainable by us in our own power. We cannot measure up. We're doomed. If you think that somehow you can be good enough to get in by your righteousness, Jesus shatters that illusion. Because you'd have to be exactly like he was, perfect. And you ain't. So it's an utter impossibility of meeting the standard of God in our own power. Absolutely. So what this does, it drives us to him for the righteousness that we need. Thank God for that. Amen. You see, that's why the Beatitudes start in verse 3. Blessed, fortunate, happy are the poor in spirit. They recognize they can't do it. And they turn to the Lord. The grant forgiveness and grace. That's what Jesus is teaching. Do not use as an, that as an excuse. Well... I can't measure up, so I'm not going to try. Oh, really? Actually, you know you can't measure up. You've trusted the Lord. 
But you now, in verse 6 of Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Your desire is, I want to be practically righteous. So you will pursue it, though you'll never achieve perfection in this life. The reason you pursue it is because your nature has been changed by the new birth. And because of the new birth, you desire righteousness. You do hunger and thirst for it. And God fulfills it. And the things that our Lord requires of us to do, we pursue it. Let me conclude by saying this. This last point was about the urgency of reconciliation for believers. There is a point of reconciliation an urgency for it for unbelievers. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you it's urgent for you to be reconciled with God. You see, if you're not a Christian, God doesn't chasten you. He will judge you. The judgment is divine damnation, eternal torment. For if you refuse his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you leave yourself exposed to the potential for divine judgment in fiery hell. You need to be reconciled to him. And the only way you can be reconciled to God is through faith in his son. And when that occurs, occurs, then stand right with him, a right relationship. You don't have to worry about eternal damnation. You can have the joy of having a relationship with him now and for all eternity. That is what you need if you're not a believer. If you are a believer this morning, you want to do everything that Jesus wants. You want your heart to be clean. You want your heart to be pure. You want your heart to be right with him. And he enables it by the Holy Spirit who lives in you and the word of God who sanctifies you. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we bless your name for um, the word of God this morning. Thank you for Jesus' enunciation of the truth about where uh, murder really lies. Thank you for its clarification. And may it help us as we become more like him by your grace to live in the way that is increasingly pleasing in your sight. We pray for the, anyone in this room who's without Christ, who recognizes they're estranged from you by their sin. That you open their eyes and move their hearts to trust in your son, the only provision that you give for sinners. They'll see him as he is, the only Savior, and come to him in repentant faith. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for his and your glory. Amen.